One of my fondest memories as a child, I grew up in a little house with a lot of people. Anybody else like that? I grew up in a little house with a lot of people. There were four siblings. Also, we typically had other family, family members that were living with us. My grandmother lived with us most of my childhood. And one of my, most, my fondest memories as a child is our dining room table. Um, my parents no longer have that same dining room table, but I remember as a little kid and the four of us, we would be circled around that table for all sorts of different things. We would eat a meal almost every single night together. We would go to ball practice or to whatever we had, but we would come back in time for dinner and we would sit at that table and usually my grandma would be preparing a meal and we'd eat at that table and once dinner was over, we would work on homework. Um, homework would happen at that table. Um, discipline would happen at that table table, all sorts of fond memories I remember from that table. Um, we did so much homework on that table over the course of the years that there are so many pin impressions on the wooden table. The whole thing is just covered in little squiggly lines on the entire thing of it. And what's beautiful about a dining room table and some of the, some of the things that we miss out in our fast food culture and our crazy busy culture is we, we miss oftentimes the fellowship and the communion and the sweetness that happens at a dining room table. Um, and what a table symbolizes and what a table um, represents is relationship together. And what we see today when we look into Mark chapter 14 is we see that Jesus is at a table. We get to see a unique picture, a unique story where Jesus is reclining at table, which he does very often. It seems to be the case that he's always eating with his disciples. He's always eating with friends. He's always eating with people in the city, and they are together at the table. And today we get to see a beautiful interchange of a couple different people who are at the table. And I want to encourage you today um, that Jesus invites you at, to eat at his table, as we will see, um, but sometimes we have different reactions to joining Jesus and being with him in uh, the dining room. And so today we're going to see two people, uh, two, uh, really a contrast of two people that are both in close proximity to Jesus, both at his table, but both completely different responses to him. And so that's what we're, where we are in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. This is what it says. Mark 14, 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. You mean people were trying to kill Jesus, Ethan? Yes, people were trying to kill him. He was completely turning the religious system upside down, and the pastors of his day did not like it. He was threatening the religious system, and they wanted him killed. Verse 2. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. The chief priests and the scribes are trying to conspire about how to kill Jesus, capture Jesus, arrest, arrest him, and get him executed. And for the next few days of his life, we will see this plot continue to lay out. Let me catch you up to speed on where we are in Mark chapter 14. The, fat, the last uh, three chapters of the Gospel of Mark, three chapters are devoted to just a few days of Jesus' life. 
Now, it's interesting if you are a historian and you're writing a bio of someone's life, you don't devote a large portion of your biography to just a few days in the life of someone, unless those days are so significant and so powerful that it needs the intention that you give it. And here we find ourselves in Mark, as well as the other gospel writers, take a significant portion of their gospel, of their account, their bio of Jesus, to devote specifically to a few days. They're going to devote several days, and if you're here for the next several weeks, you're going to see us walk through the next few days of Jesus' life that lead him to his impending death and resurrection that will happen from his death. And we see, Mark tells us, that it is the week of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, what in the world is the Passover and unleavened bread? That seems very bizarre to me. What is he talking about? In order to understand this, you have to understand, you have to go all the way back to the book of Exodus, the early chapters of Exodus in which God would deliver his people from a oppressive dictator, Pharaoh, over the land of Egypt. In Exodus, God's people had been under this oppressive rule of Pharaoh for 430 years. God's people were enslaved. God's people were oppressed. They were forced to work. They were forced to work under this oppressive Pharaoh for centuries upon centuries. And God decides that it's time for his people to be delivered and for his people to be let go. So God raises up an unlikely candidate. By the way, do you ever feel like you're an unlikely candidate for God? God raises up an unlikely candidate by the name of Moses. And Moses has a hundred different excuses for why he is not supposed to work for God and be God's called and anointed uh, prophet for his people. And God sends Moses before the Pharaoh with a message proclaiming that he should let his people go. Pharaoh doesn't want to listen. He doesn't want to be a part of God's plan and what God is doing. He resists, and therefore God ushers in, if you're familiar with the story, ten plagues in order to try to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. Fast forward, the tenth plague is the death of the firstborn, in which the death angel will be sent over Egypt, and every home that is not covered with blood on the doorpost, the death angel will pass over that home, and the firstborn child will be taken and will be killed in that moment. Now, in order for God's plan to be uh, pursued, God commands his people and anyone that will take an innocent lamb of one year old and take that lamb and kill it and slay it and take its blood and put it on your doorpost of your home, the death angel will pass over you. Now, let's just be really honest. That's pretty bizarre. I mean, imagine if you went home this afternoon and your neighbor had blood on the doorpost of their, like, can we get the neighbor, this neighbor? This, who's this crazy neighbor that's got, like, blood on, the, on their it was a really bizarre, it was a bizarre situation. Um, and the only way that you would do that is this bizarre, crazy thing is if you actually had faith in God and believed in what God said and God's promise. And here's the, the thing about Pharaoh and the people in Egypt. They don't have enough faith in God to do that. They don't have enough faith in God to do that. They're not going to believe that. They're not going to do something that is bizarre. They're not going to do something that is crazy in order to follow God in this way. By the way, did you know that God calls you to do bizarre things? Did you know that God calls you to do crazy things? God calls you to do things that your neighbors will never understand. God calls you to do things that your coworkers will think you are a lunatic. 
But we follow God, we pursue God, not because it makes sense or because it's normal or because everybody else has our back. We follow God because of faith and what he has called us to do. Um, we planted this church several years ago, almost four years ago, actually, with a few dozen people um, and moved to a brand new city without um, any uh, really resources and plan and strategy, but a, pe- a few people moved together to start a church called the Bridge Church. That's crazy. That, that, that's crazy talk. The only way that you do that is if God calls you to do it and you step out in faith and you step out in bold faith. Here's the problem with Pharaoh. He doesn't have faith in God. So that night, the death angel comes and literally wipes out the firstborn of every child in Egypt, except for those who had their doorposts. The lintels of their door are covered in the blood of an innocent lamb. Pharaoh responds with indignation and wrath after this 10th plague. And he says, get out of here. Get out of this country. Leave this place. I don't want your people here anymore, but this is going to happen because of you being here. And so he sends God's people out and God's people are delivered in the exodus, the exit out of Egypt. And God delivers them from the oppressive ruler, from their slavery. And then God institutes the meal of the Passover as a meal in which you would participate every year after that happened. And so God's people... The Israelites, they would come together at the time of Passover and they would slaughter another innocent lamb as a remembrance and they would eat of that lamb and they would take unleavened bread and they would take the cup and they would eat a meal symbolizing and remembering the Passover that happened back hundreds and hundreds of years. And God's people did this over and over and over again. And we find ourselves here in Mark 14. It's the week of Passover and Jesus is in Jerusalem with his disciples. Now look with me in verse 3. We'll go on. It says this. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard. You're like, what is nard? I'm not sure. Very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. This is pretty interesting. She takes this alabaster flask. It's uh, like a perfume jar, so you could say. And it doesn't have a twist cap on it that you can take it on and off or a pump spray at the top. The only way that you would access the ointment or the oil that was inside this flask is you would have to break it. You'd have to break the top. And when you broke it, it was just a one-time use. You would use it for a specific purpose. And then we read on in verse 4. This woman breaks it over uh, Jesus, over his head. She anoints his body. Verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, angrily, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. There's apparently some people in the room that are watching what's going down. There's some people that are watching what this woman does, and they become indignant. They become angry. They're like, why in the world would she ever do that? Why in the world would you use something this costly, this expensive to be able to anoint this man, this is, this is so bizarre. It's not his birthday. It's not a wedding. It's not a memorable event. Like, what are you doing right uh, here? 300 denarii, a denar, or a denarii, is, a denarii is equivalent to one day's wages. And so 300 days' wages is essentially right at an annual year's salary. So to put it in your terms, think about what your annual salary is. If you're college students, I'm sorry, you don't have the ability to be able to think about that. One, one day you will. One day you will. Um, but think about what your annual, think about what you want to make one day. Um, your annual salary, imagine you had something in your home that was of the same value of the annual salary that you make. 
and she breaks this for Jesus to anoint it. This would have been her most prized possession. This would have been her most costly treasure. And she breaks it over at Jesus. And the people, the other, these are a few disciples. These are a few bystanders. They scold her. They have the audacity to rebuke her for this. They criticize her completely against this idea they don't like it they don't understand it and they're against her verse six but jesus said leave her alone why do you trouble her she has done a beautiful thing to me for you always have the poor with you and whenever you want you can do good for them but you will not always have me verse eight she has done what she could she has anointed my body beforehand for burial Here's what's beautiful about this woman. She sees people, I'm sorry, she sees things that other people don't see. She understands something that the others don't understand. She experiences something that the others don't experience. She recognizes and she understands that Jesus isn't just a rabbi, just isn't some uh, random religious teacher, but Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who is going forward to his death. This may be the last opportunity that she has to see him. This may be the last opportunity that she has to be in close proximity to Jesus. She knows that his death is pending, is coming, and so she takes the opportunity to anoint his body for a future burial. Nobody else gets it. Nobody else sees it. Nobody else understands, but she understands and she sees. Verse 9, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. She gets it. She understands it. She sees what no one else sees. We see from John 12, the parallel account of this in John's gospel. John tells us that this is Mary. This is the Mary that is the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus. You remember the story of Martha and, and Mary. Um, Jesus is at their house. Uh, Martha is in the kitchen making food. And Mary is in the living room at Jesus' feet. And Martha gets mad at Mary because she ain't helping in the kitchen. We got some food to cook. We got some people to feed, and all you're doing is sitting at Jesus' feet, hanging out, and learning from him. We got some work to be done in the house. This is the same Mary. This is the same Mary. Mary has a unique interaction with Jesus. She has a unique relationship with Jesus. What we love about Mary is she's always at the feet of Jesus. She's always experiencing Jesus. She's always receiving communion from Jesus. She experiences him and understands him in a way that uh, most of the others around um, her don't understand. And then we see that she gives Jesus her best gift. I can't even imagine like something in my house of equivalent to the salary that I make, breaking it and giving it to Jesus in that moment. She gives Jesus her absolute best. Here's what um, we learn from Mary. No offering is too great for Jesus. No offering is too great for Jesus. There isn't anything that you could offer Jesus and that would be enough. There isn't anything that you could offer Jesus, there isn't anything that you could give him that he would be like, that's too much. I'm not deserving of that. Jesus is deserving of everything that you have. And Mary is a woman who has been changed by Jesus, has experienced Jesus. Her life has been transformed. Mary is a woman who understands that she was a mess, but then she received grace from Jesus. Mary understands that she was far from God, that she was a rebel from God, that she was against God, but God receives her and accepts her, and that God changes her, that Jesus loves her and Jesus cares for her, and Jesus is going to give his life for her. 
And in response, Mary gives Jesus her best. Mary gives Jesus her best. You see, you could say it this way. Because Jesus gave me his best, I will give him my best. Because Jesus gave me his best, I will give him my best. Now, I know that we got all sorts of different kinds of people in the room today. Some of you are like, I'm not even sure if I'm down with this Jesus thing. Like, I don't, this doesn't even completely make sense to me, Ethan. I'm just, I'm just here checking this out, and you're talking about me giving Jesus my best. I don't know what you're talking about. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world, not to just be a moral leader, not to be a religious leader, not to just be another random rabbi, but Jesus came as the Son of God to enter human history for a mission for you, that he came and he loved you, and he walked this ground, and he lived the life that you couldn't live, and he died the death that you should have died, and he conquered the grave that you couldn't conquer. It's the greatest news in the history of the world. And when that news, when that gospel makes sense in you, when it makes sense somewhere down in here, it changes you from the inside out. Scripture talks about you get a new heart, you get a new mind, you get a new life, you get a new joy, you get a new purpose, you get a new mission. It fundamentally changes everything about you. And when you've received Jesus' best, it compels you to give him your best. Question for you today, out of curiosity, what are you willing to give to Jesus today? Look at your neighbor and say, he's talking to me. What are you willing? What are you willing to give of Jesus today? Jesus has given you his best. He's given you his, his all. He's given you his life. There's a parable in Matthew 13 that Jesus tells. I didn't mention this in the 9 o'clock, but I'll mention it today in the 11. Um, added bonus for the 11 o'clock. There's a parable in Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus is trying to articulate and Jesus is trying to describe for his disciples what the kingdom of heaven is like. He's trying to describe what the kingdom of God is like. He's trying to get them to understand what it's like to actually experience the kingdom of God in your own life. And Jesus tells a parable. He says, um, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. And a man one day stumbles across the treasure and finds the treasure. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has to buy the field. Jesus wants us to understand today that understanding him and knowing him and walking with him is a treasure greater than anything else that you possess. That everything else you possess, that everything that you own pales in comparison to the treasure of knowing and experiencing Jesus. And in response to finding the treasure of Jesus, everything else is not nearly as worthy, worthy as valuable as a treasure as treasure of finding Jesus. And Mary has found the treasure. Mary has found the treasure. She has experienced Jesus in a way that perhaps many people haven't experienced. And she comes and she knows him and finds him. Now, what's interesting about this passage that you may have noticed is that Mary is in the room who loves Jesus and worships Jesus, but there's somebody else in the room that is a critic of Mary. It's a critic of Mary's worship. That's a critic of Mary's offering. That's a critic of Mary's gift. John 12 would tell us that this is um, Judas himself. 
John 12 tells us that Judas is the one who first thinks to himself, um, why in the world would she use this for Jesus when it could be sold for 300 denarii? And then the text tells us that that criticism spreads to other people in the room. Did you know that uh, criticism is contagious? The other disciples, they're just bystanders. They're just standing there. And someone first was critical, and so they began to be critical as well. Can you imagine being there in the room? Mary, she's been thinking about this moment. Mary's been hoping for this day. Mary's been dreaming for the opportunity where she would be able to anoint Jesus with this precious perfume and this precious oil because she knows she's, he's getting ready to die and to give up his life. And then she's got critics in the room. People that are scolding her for what she is doing. People that are rebuking her for the kind of worship and offering that she is giving um, to Jesus. Here's what's most unfortunate about the critic. Uh, critics miss the moment. Critics miss the moment. You could have experienced this moment. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This just doesn't happen every day. You're never going to be able to experience something quite like this again in your life. And there is a moment in which you could participate. There's a moment in which you could celebrate. There's a moment in which you could worship. There's a moment in which you could be there in Jesus' presence and experience this and smell the oil and smell the perfume and participate in what is happening because, as Jesus says, it is a beautiful thing that's happening. But critics miss the moment. Um, in complete transparency and honesty... I hate to say this, but I am often the biggest critic. Um, I have a tendency to be extremely critical. Um, I see, I walk into a room and I see everything that's wrong. Uh, just, a, just a few weeks ago, we were at, um, we were at my child's uh, spring festival. Um, she's in kindergarten, she goes to Gregory, and they were having a festival out in the field. And the whole time, I was so, like, ticked off because of how crazy this thing was. Like, I'm like if, if I organized this event, if I was in charge of this event, um, it, it, would, it, would be, it, would be, it would be straight up. It would be organized. There wouldn't be all this chaos. I mean, the lines would be shorter. Uh, we would have more organization here. The food line would be easier. We would have had more food trucks. And, I, and I'm, in, I'm in this, I'm, like, thinking. I'm, I'm like, thinking of all the things that, that are, are wrong about this situation. Do you know what I did that day? I missed the moment. I missed the moment. Who cares at the end of the day if the lines are long? My kindergarten daughter is in a field running around with her friends playing. And I'm sitting here taking note and pointing out everything that's wrong about it. See, the, the, critic, the critics miss, miss the moment. I'll tell you another. Yesterday, yesterday one of our good friends graduated from UNCW and we got to participate in the graduation ceremony. Unfortunately, it was at 9 a.m., on a Saturday. We woke up and I got ready. I had to leave the house at about 8 o'clock and I would rather be sleeping. And we got to uh, the graduation ceremony. We're there. You know, it lasted a couple hours and then we were having a party for hosting a party at our house afterwards of that and there was a lot to do and trying to get the yard in, in shape. I got mulch to pull out. got all this stuff that's going on and I find myself on the way to the house. I'm starting to become really critical. I'm, just, I'm starting to be really critical of the situation. Um, 
so critical, get this, um, I confessed this to my father-in-law earlier. Um, I, my father-in-law did me a favor by picking up a couple bags of mulch because we didn't have a mulch and he brought them through the house. And then when I talked to him, um, I got in his, his case that he didn't put the mulch out for me. Like, I mean, that's, and I was literally critical of, uh, of him. Like, there's a tendency in, in my heart, and I'm sure there's perhaps a tendency in your heart to become critical of the people that are around you. And what's most unfortunate about the critics are they're missing, they miss the moment. I just wonder for, for you today, um, what are the moments that you're missing? What are the moments that you're missing? Are, are you primarily a critic of your spouse or are you a champion of your spouse? Are you primarily a critic of your child or are you primarily a champion of your child? Are you primarily a critic of your boss or a champion of your boss? You're like, Ethan, if you only knew the boss that I had to work with, you would understand my situation. Are you... Are, are you a champion at your workplace or are you a critic at your workplace? Let's get a little bit personal. Are you a critic at church or are you a champion at church? Um, now, here, 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 here's the thing. Um, we are cursed in our culture by comfort. And we have been trained and hardwired as Americans that everything exists for us and our consumerism, the seat's not comfortable enough, it's too cold, it's too hot, I didn't like the tone of that sound, I, I don't like the shoes that he's wearing up there today, I didn't like the electric guitar uh, riff that just happened right there, I would prefer a different sound, I'd prefer an organ sound over the piano sound, it's a little bit too loud for me, it's, a little, it's not loud enough for me, it's like, uh, do you, now, I, I've just, and I'll say, my list is longer than yours when it comes to criticism about the church, it is, it is, and, and, and there is a place there is a place for constructive criticism. There is a place for feedback. I love feedback. I love it when people give me feedback. But you have to decide in your heart, are you going to be a critic or are you going to be a champion? You know, what if you walked into this room ready to worship rather than to uh, be critical of everything that, that happens? Like, I mean, do you, do, you show up, do you show up to community group criticizing everything that happened on Sunday or championing everything that happened on Sunday? Because here's, here's, the re here's the reality. God is doing something crazy in our church. God is doing something amazing in our city. God is doing something amazing here. He's doing something amazing in your community group. He's doing something amazing in your family, and you may not be able to see it. He's doing something amazing at your workplace, in your room, in your dorm room, and you may not be able to see it yet. And be a champion because I don't want you to miss the moment. I don't want you to miss the moment. There, you, there are a thousand things that you could be critical of. There, there will never be a day where there isn't anything to be critical of. You've got to decide, I'm going to be a champion. I'm going to be a champion of Alex up here on stage. I'm going to be a champion of the pastors and the elders and the sound team. And the, the sound team, you know, nobody, the sound team never gets loved, by the way. The tech team, can we just love, can we just love them, by the way? They got a hard job back there. I mean, there's like 4,000 knobs on that thing. I don't, even, I don't even understand. I don't even know how they do it. And they miss a cue every now and then. So what? Let's not miss the moment. Now, here's, here's what's interesting about Judas in this situation. Um, it seems like he has good intentions on the surface. You ever had a critic that had seemed like they had good intentions? He's like, hey, hey man, um, we could do ministry with this money. He's like, we, this, is a, this is really valuable. We could sell it, and we could give it to the poor. We could, give, we could give all this to the poor. We could help people. We could, like, we could start a mission. We could start a ministry. We could, we could serve a lot of people. That's actually not the way that uh, Judas felt. How do you know that, Ethan? 
John 12, the parallel passage, it shows us this. Judas said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas is acting, he's posturing himself like he really actually cares about people, but the only person that he cares about is himself. See, what happens when we get critical is that we're actually at the end of the day being really selfish. Uh, you, say, you say it this way. On the surface, critics appear, appear uh, holy, but they're actually selfish. You know, I, we, we, we can't be fooled that our, our, in, in criticism, we're critic of our spouse, critic of our children, critic of our church, whatever, blah, 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 um, that we actually uh, have good intentions. Sometimes we do, but at the end of the day, a lot of times it's because we're selfish, because we would do it differently, because of our cultural preferences aren't being met. You know, if, if worship, if the only way that worship happened if all, it was if all of our cultural preferences were met, worship would never happen. Amen. Now, like, and so when, when I come in here, like, everything that we do isn't what I would choose to do. I come in here and I, and I take my cultural preferences and what I would like and put them to the side for the greater good. And I have made a decision that I'm not going to let my preferences get in the way of my worship. And I'm going to worship, and I'm going to come in here, and I don't care if the key isn't in my key, and I don't care if this person didn't say hey to me, and this person blah, 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 blah. I'm going to come in here, I'm going to, I'm going to worship. You know, I'm not going to waste, I'm not going to miss the moment, because this is the moment that God has for me. Now, um, let's, jump to, let's jump to verse 10. Got a long ways to go and a short time to get there. And some of you are like, man, Ethan, you talk really well to critics. That's because I am one. Verse 10, verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. You know what is true about Judas? Uh, Judas was close to Jesus. He was close to Jesus. He was one of the 12. He had close proximity to Jesus, but he didn't have communion with, with Jesus. Um, what we find out is that Jesus wasn't actually Judas' God. Judas had a different God. Um, his real God was money. Jesus was just a means to an end. I want to encourage you today. Um, is Jesus a means to an end, or is Jesus the end for you? Now, um, you could say it this way. Um, just because you're close to Jesus doesn't mean you have communion with Jesus. Like, but Ethan, I've been, I've been a part of this church for... So I've been a member of XYZ Baptist Church for so long, and, you know, Ethan, I, I'm, I'm a leader in this church. I've done, you know, sometimes the closer you are to Jesus, the harder it is to have communion with Jesus. And just because you have close proximity doesn't mean that you have communion with him. Judas is in the same room as Jesus, but Judas doesn't get it. Jesus, Judas doesn't experience it. He's actually far from it because his heart's a million miles away. I just... How many of you here today and your heart's like a million miles away? I've been there. I've been there. I, I know what it's like. Um, at the end of the day, um, I want you to have communion with Jesus. I want you to know him. Um, I just don't want you to be close to what's happening. I want you to actually be a part of what's happening. And Judas is so far away from it. Verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb and his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? This is great. I love this. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. 
It's like, find the guy with the Yeti and just keep following him somewhere, and then I'll tell you what to do. Verse 14. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room uh, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there to prepare us. This is kind of like similar to the donkey story where he's like, go into the town. There's going to be a donkey there. You're going to find the donkey. It's a weird story. Jesus always sends you into bizarre situations. He always sends you into really odd situations to see if you're going to trust him and to follow him. They're like, this is crazy. Verse 16, and the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. They walked up, and they're like, hey, you're the guy with the Yeti. Uh, we followed you into your house. I know you were creeped out. I'm sorry about that, but I'm supposed to talk to the master of the house. Can I talk to him yet? Hey, I know you own this house. Apparently, you got like a, a room upstairs for us. The master says that we're coming to have Passover, and he's like, yeah, I got a room upstairs. It's ready for you. And like, that's crazy. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Like, I'm <laughs> going to set this thing up. All right, all right Jesus, Jesus, he's amazing. Verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the 12, and as they were reclining at table and eating, uh, this is beautiful, Jesus is eating a meal with his 12 disciples, it's just for them, it's Passover, it's the annual ritual in which they're celebrating. Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Awkward. Like, it's like, one of, one of you guys is going to betray me, verse 19. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? Is it me, Jesus? I'm sorry, like, I'm not sure it's me. Or is it Peter? Could it please be Peter? We know he's a little rough around the edges. Could it be Peter? I don't want to be, is it me? Is it me? Okay, I'm good. Am I good? Okay, I'm, I'm good. All right, then he goes on. Um, verse, uh, verse 21. Um, actually, verse 20. Ha ha. Verse 20. He said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. I feel like at that moment, Judas was like getting ready to eat the bread that he just dipped in the, it's not me, it's not me, I don't know what he's talking about, I don't, I don't know what he's talking about. Verse 20, 21, for the Son of Man uh, goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Here's what's amazing about Jesus, though. Jesus still lets him eat at the table. If it's me, Judas didn't eat at my table. <laughs> Jesus would have been long gone. Jesus has still given him an opportunity to repent. Jesus has still given him an opportunity to come and to receive from him. It's amazing. Verse 22. And as they were eating, this is the Passover meal they're eating. As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Now, if you've been in church for some time, you've heard this like a hundred times, this is really weird. Um, this, I mean, ima imagine being one of the disciples, all right? Jesus has got the unleavened bread. They eat the Passover meal every year. This is something that they always do. It's a commemoration of the Passover that happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago in, in Egypt. They're ready to receive the meal. Jesus breaks the bre bread. He hands it, and he says, this is my body. I'm sorry? Um, this is my, my body. Uh, Jesus, he's... He's rewriting the narrative of the Passover meal. He, in this moment, is rewriting hundreds of years of history. He says, take, this is my body, verse 23. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. He passed the cup around, and, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Another one like, what? Really? This is wine jesus what what are you talking about this is your blood this is weird he says no this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many verse 25 
truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is um, absolutely amazing to me. Most of these disciples would have grown up in a Jewish household. Most of them would have grown up annually looking forward to the Passover meal. It's kind of like Thanksgiving meal at your grandma's. You've done it so many times. You're used to it. Um, this is something that you would have practiced. It would have something you would have had a lamb that would have been, somebody would have killed a lamb, somebody would have cooked the lamb, you would have eaten the lamb, then you would have had bread, you would have had the unleavened bread that you would have eaten together, you would have had a cup, it would have been a meal that you would have practiced, that you would have been very familiar with, that you'd done pretty much your entire life. But Jesus, in this moment, he rewrites the narrative. He rewrites a practice that has been practiced for a few millennia. And in this moment, notice some significant things. He takes the unleavened bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body. What he's doing is he's saying this meal is really about me. This meal has really always been about me. This meal has always been pointing to me. And he takes that bread and he passes it around. He says, take eat, this is my body. And I think the disciples begin to catch on slowly. And then he takes the cup and he passes this cup that they would have drank in dozens of times. And he passes it around and he says, um, this is the blood of my covenant. Jesus uses the word covenant covenant which they would have understood a covenant which they would have understood that god had made with them over and over again a covenant and jesus said this is the covenant of my blood this is a new covenant you've got the old testament and then you've got the new testament it's the same word for covenant it's old covenant and a new covenant jesus is instituting a new covenant with his followers this is crazy this is amazing and he passes the cup and they take and they drink and he says this is the blood of my new covenant for your sins you know there's something really interesting about this meal that's different than all the others prior? There's no lamb. There's no lamb. There's no one-year-old innocent lamb that was killed and sacrificed that they ate of at the table. Why would that be the case? Because Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is saying, take, eat of me. I am the lamb. I am the innocent, harmless lamb that will be killed and that will be slayed and my blood will be shed not on the post of the door of your house but on a post in which i would die on the cross for you and we no longer need to eat a lamb at this meal because i am the lamb that has been given and sacrificed for you and you no longer need to kill any more lambs no longer they all pointed towards me and i as the lamb am sacrificed for your sins and here's the kicker Jesus is the Passover lamb, which means that if his blood covers you, when God sees you, he passes over you as well. That Jesus' blood that was shed on the post of the cross would be for your own forgiveness of your sins. And just as the death angel passed over the homes in Egypt, God's spirit would pass over you and forgive you of all your sin and your shame. And the blood that he shed and the blood that he spilled on his cross is now atonement and covering for you. Isn't that good news? And here's... And here's, here's what I want to encourage you with as we land the plane today. Two figures other than Jesus in the story that we are supposed to look at and ask a really hard question today. Mary on one side, she experiences Jesus, she knows Jesus, she actually has communion with Jesus. And then Judas, who is also close to Jesus but doesn't experience communion with 
him. Which are you today? Where are you at today? What are you more like today? You find yourself being more like Judas, who's opposed, who's a critic, whose heart is a million miles away, or you like Mary, who's experiencing the moment and welcoming the moment and experiencing Jesus in the way that he should be experienced. Today, I want to encourage you to know him. Jesus invites you to his table. Jesus invites you to eat. Jesus invites you to come and to experience communion with him. It's the best offer that's ever been offered in the history of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for Jesus' blood that was shed for us and the sweet offer of communion that we get from him. And God, we love you today, and we thank you, and we praise you, and ask that you would help us to be like Mary today. We ask you to help us to be like Mary who experiences sweet communion with you. So I pray for my brothers and my sisters and my friends here today that you would encourage them and strengthen them today and empower us for what you would have um, for us. Jesus, we love you. We say this in your good name. 